0: you have your copy of God's Word this morning, let me invite you to find the book of 1 Corinthians. And as you find the book of 1 Corinthians, I want you to find 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And when you find 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I want you to find the first verse. This morning, I'm going to preach from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. You ever been broke down on the side of the road? It's not a great feeling. Now, some of you, you, uh, you might drive a new vehicle that is serviced regularly. You might be at that point in your life. And I understand that. My vehicles are relatively new, and I try to keep them serviced. But when I was young, I, I drove hoopties. I mean, when I filled my truck up in high school with gas, I doubled the value of that bad boy. Rust in the floorboard, three on the tree. When I pulled in the neighborhood, Laurel knew I was coming to pick her up. We all know what it's like to have vehicles that are not very dependable. And invariably, if you get broke down, you didn't have a choice to make. Do I call a professional, which is the wise choice to make, or do I call a buddy to give me a tow? A few months ago, my son called and said, Dad, I'm broke down. He was just a few miles from my house. It was late at night. We had no idea what was wrong with his truck. It is a used truck. It used to be my truck. When he turned 16, he said, Dad, am I going to get a truck? I said, no, I am. (laughs) I bought me a nice truck, and I gave him the old one. That's the way it should be. He can buy him a nice truck one day if he wants to. I care not. But I I put him in a used truck that's relatively dependable. He said, Dad, it's broke down. I asked a series of questions to help him walk through some basic mechanics. I am by no means a mechanic. And there was no move in this truck. It was late at night. It's a few miles from my home. There's very little traffic down where I live at this time of night. So I grabbed a tow rope and I went to pull him. Now, if you call a tow truck, you don't have to do anything. You hand the guy the keys, he'll come. Most of the time, it's with a rollback, and they will roll your truck or car up onto the rollback, and your car or truck has no one in it, nor is there anyone needed. Your car is not really towed. It is carried to the place that you want it to be carried to, the shop or the mechanic or to your home. But when you use a tow rope like we used to do, I had to explain to him, son, obviously I'm going to pull you, but you need to follow me correctly. Make sure the truck is in neutral to start with. Put the caution lights on, and remember that if the vehicle will not crank, you don't have power steering, which means it's much harder to steer the vehicle. And also remember that there's nothing between your truck and my truck to stop your truck hitting my truck if I stop and you don't. So not only do you have to turn when I turn, you've got to touch your brakes when you see me touch my brakes. And when you see me accelerate, you've got to make sure you're not touching anything but the steering wheel in order that my truck can pull my truck and your truck. It's a little bit nerve-wracking. I'm sorry that your truck is not running tonight, but if you hit my truck, you're going to die on the side of this road. (laughs) So I need you to follow me the right way. Did you know there's a wrong way to follow? If this passage has any meaning, it is simply this. There is a right way to follow spiritual leaders. There's a wrong way to follow spiritual leaders. And Paul is dealing with a church that had expressed its commitment to Christ but it was following human leadership all the wrong way. How you follow spiritual leaders in your life matters greatly, not only to the health of our church corporately, but also to your health individually and spiritually. And Paul has dealt with this subject over and over in chapter 3 as we continue this series called Follow the Leader. But when we get to chapter 4, he begins to proactively present a positive picture of what it looks like to follow a spiritual leader the right way. Is that not how you play follow the leader? Follow the leader is not simply running behind someone who walking behind someone follow the leader is doing exactly what the leader does if the leader skips you skip if the leader hops you hops if the leader stops and claps three times you clap three times thus the game follow the leader this morning I want to show you how to follow spiritual leaders the right way if you have your copy of God's Word whether you have a printed copy as I prefer or an app on a device I'm going to read aloud read along with me silently 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, verse 4, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. And I'll close with verse 5 this morning. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart? then each one will receive his commendation from God. Context matters. When Paul found out that the Corinthian church was dividing itself, it broke his heart to learn that they were actually dividing themselves over sinful loyalty to certain spiritual leaders. In other words, they had organized in camps. Some said, hey, We get our teaching and preaching from Paul, and if Paul said it, we do it, so we are superior. Others said, no, 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 Apollos has come, and he is eloquent in rhetoric. We love to listen to him, and we're in his camp, so we're better than you. We've got a better line to heaven than you. Still others said, no, 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 we don't submit to any human leadership, we're in the Jesus camp. We just go straight to Jesus And do not bother ourselves with the teachings of the apostles. And what happens when you have this sinful view of spiritual leadership is that people begin to divide themselves and division equals destruction because dissension destroys the gospel witness. Who in their right mind wants to come into a faith where the people in the faith talking about Christ and talking about his love can't get along with one another? can't love each other, can't encourage one another. And so one of the things Paul has to do in this letter that we have as 1 Corinthians is he has to say, you guys are looking at this all the wrong way. In verse 1, when he says us, he's talking about the spiritual leaders in Corinth, specifically those who were apostles and then those who would follow the apostles. I am not an apostle. I believe the apostles were that generation that were with Jesus, that saw Jesus, that wrote the New Testament. The apostles are with the Lord. And from the teaching of the apostles which was then canonized in Scripture, now God calls out pastors, preachers, elders, overseers, those words are used interchangeably in the New Testament, to not create new content, but to take what the apostles said and say it again to a new generation. Say it again in a modern context. Say it so that you and I can apply it to our lives, both the same way the Corinthian believers did and also the way it requires of us in the 21st century. And so I'm not an apostle, But I am a spiritual leader. Many of you are spiritual leaders. You may say, well, I'm not a spiritual leader. Well, there are two ways to think about the phrase spiritual leader. There is the official capacity of people called out to lead in the church as elders, as pastors, as overseers. But then the Bible clearly teaches that every mother in this room is a spiritual leader of the hearts of her children. Every father in this room is the spiritual leader of his home or should be. Every man in this room who has the privilege of being called a husband is to be a spiritual leader of his marriage, of his wife. Every one of you who cares about Christ and goes to work tomorrow, and people work for you, though your capacity is not official, though there is no title, as a person who loves the Lord Jesus, you should use your leadership in the marketplace, in the classroom, in the care facility within medicine to encourage and lead others to Christ. Now, when we study the Bible, the primary application should be the primary application. And this is specifically talking about spiritual leaders. But the secondary application matters too. Everything I'm about to say about your relationship with spiritual leaders can be applied to your life in two ways. One, in how you view me and other people in your life who are spiritual leaders for you, but then two, in how you supply spiritual leadership to those who might look to you for encouragement, for discernment, and for direction. How do you follow spiritual leadership the right way? Well, first of all, to do it the right way, you you have to remember, number one, what verse 1 teaches. You have to regard spiritual leaders the right way. There's a right way to regard spiritual leaders. Now, the English word regard is in the passage in verse 1. It, it means how you see them, how you perceive them. Look at verse 1. He says, this is how one should regard us. Now, why would he have to say that? Well, because they've been regarding them the wrong way. He said, you, you guys have either been criticizing them sinfully are placing them on pedestals that are unrealistic. Here's how you regard a spiritual leader. And notice the two words that are used. He says, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And then he gets off on stewards in verse 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Now, oftentimes the Scriptures... Guard us from extremes. Let let me give you two extremes in spiritual leadership. One extreme is a dictator, a cult-like leader who demands 100% allegiance whether or not he or she is teaching what God says. Another extreme, though, is a leaderless leader, someone who is weak and does not have authority does not speak with authority, does not have an anointing on his life, and does not exhort the body of Christ. Notice the two words that Paul uses. One is he says, first and foremost, spiritual leaders are servants. They're not to be dictators. Uh, They're not to be narcissistic. They're they're not to be caught up in their own um, fantasy of being in charge. They're servants. Now words matter. That word servant in the New Testament literally carries the idea of someone who is an assistant to the guy who's in charge. I love that. This morning I stand before you not in charge. I'm an assistant to the guy who's in charge. Well, who is he? We just got through singing about him. He's in charge. This is his church. He redeemed you if you're saved. If you don't know the Lord, he longs to redeem you because he died for you. I am not him. I do not possess his words. I don't have his intellect, his wisdom, his spiritual power, his authority. I am simply a servant called to serve him. In fact, if you look deep into the meaning of the word, it's also the word that would have been used for the guy in the bottom of the boat who's rowing. In other words, I'm not the captain of the boat. I'm just a person called to help row the boat as the captain leads as the captain provides the direction. And so the posture of a spiritual leader is to serve. Now, unfortunately, what we find in our culture, especially in the West, that there is this fascination with celebrity pastors, with celebrity spiritual leaders, with men and women who have incredible abilities and who are uh, published authors and Conference speakers, and they seem to have an air about them that constantly points you to their ministry and their face. One of the greatest ways to spot a celebrity pastor is the cover of all his books will have a picture of him on it. All of them, not just one of them, not just a biography, all of them will have a picture of him and his pretty wife right there on it. In fact, if you want to go into a local community and find celebrity pastors, just look at the billboards. If it has a picture of the church or God's word, I'd visit. If it's a big old picture of him smiling with a smile, he bought. Mm, I'm going to go listen online before I show up just to see what's going on here. He is to be a servant. But then there's a second word, a steward. Now, what's a steward? If a servant has no authority, a steward has authority. But the word steward... It's the same word we use as manager. Every store you visit will have a store manager. He or she is not in charge, but they are the manager. So of all the people in the store who have the most authority, they have the most authority. They'll have a different color shirt on because they are the manager. It may say manager on their name tag. If you have a problem with customer service and the person who's trying to assist you is not helpful and you don't get the answers that you need, politely, I hope, you would say, may I speak with the manager? You don't go into Best Buy. You don't go to Lowe's. You don't go to Home Depot. You don't go to Target and say, may I speak to the owner? These are publicly traded companies. There are no owner. There are thousands of owners. There's a CEO somewhere. He's not here. He doesn't have an office in the back of your Ikea. You say, I need to speak to the manager because the manager, who is not the owner, has been given authority over the contents of the store and over the service to the clientele. Paul says spiritual leaders do not own the gospel. Spiritual leaders are not in charge of the gospel. Spiritual leaders are simply entrusted to manage what? Well, look what verse one says. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, You have to understand what that means. Some people may say, does that mean that pastors or elders uh, or in the first century, apostles, uh, they have an insight that no one else has? Well, if you just read it at face value, you might think that. But when you study the Bible in its whole, the word mysteries of God is often used to talk about the gospel and the contents of the gospel that were once a mystery but have now been revealed. Jesus talked about this in the book of Matthew. He says, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. He's talking to his disciples, who many of them would become these apostles, and the generations following them would be the spiritual leaders. And what you hear whispered, Proclaim on the housetops. In other words, Jesus said, I have come in great mystery born of a virgin. I have come in great expectation. There is a lot of me that people don't understand. But as I reveal the truth of who I am, let the world know, proclaim it to the world that the mysteries of God have now been revealed in Christ. Which then tells us what a spiritual leader should steward. He should steward The proclamation of the gospel and the application of the gospel in whatever church he leads. So there it is. Those are those two bumper rails. If you'll imagine a bowling alley with me, when you take your children and you ask them to put the bumpers up on the gutters, it is so the children can enjoy the experience of rolling the ball very slowly, very awkwardly, all the way down to knock over one pin. And they're so excited. It would be impossible without the bumpers being up. The bumpers for you and I to see a pastor's life is that on one hand, he needs to be a servant, not a dictator. But on the other hand, he needs to be a steward entrusted with something greater than him. Because he is a servant, he wants to put the interest of the church above his own. But because he is a steward, he'll never allow the church to call the shots. The Bible calls the shots, the gospel is the message, and Jesus is the Savior. So his authority comes from God as a steward, but his heart comes from God as a servant. And then what's his standard? I love how it closes. Look at verse 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. You know, one of the greatest mistakes in ministry and in churches that I see is that they substitute the word faithful for the word successful. Ministry is not always successful. If we define success as numerical growth or popularity or financial growth, what do you do with, I don't know, Paul? He ended up in prison, died at the hands of Nero. Nero. What about John the Baptist? We have no reason to believe that John the Baptist disobeyed the Lord in his ministry and was beheaded. All of the disciples would eventually give their lives for the gospel. The youngest one became the oldest one who wrote the last book in your Bible, the Revelation of Jesus. He wrote it when he was in his 90s, more than likely, and he was in exile on the Isle of Patmos. This is so important, but it's not just important for pastors to remember. It's important when you launch that small group, and it takes a while before it gets going. It's important when you finally share your faith with someone, and they look at you with a blank stare, and no reaction happens. It's important when, as a parent, you try to have those somewhat awkward spiritual conversations with your teenager or your college-age young woman or young man, and you want to know, am I getting through to them, and you don't know? It's important to remember, God's not asked you to be successful. He's asked you to be faithful. You be faithful. Now why does that matter? Because if the standard were success, then the emphasis would be put on our performance. We might begin to believe that we're saving people, that we're growing a church, that we're making a difference. God uses us to make an impact on people's lives. But make no bones about it. He's stingy for his glory. It's His gospel. It's his work. It's his redemption. And we want it to be his. If any of you have ever prayed about being used in ministry, whether it be lead a small group, invest in children, go on a mission trip, or maybe God is calling you to the ministry, I would say to you one of the greatest ways to protect your heart from burning out, from growing cynical, from becoming stale, is to remember God has not asked you to measure your worth by the results you see. He's asked you to be faithful. And you may say, but pastor, I don't have a title. I build houses for a living. Pastor, I don't have a title. I'm a CNA. Pastor, I don't have a title. I stay at home with my children. I'm a retired grandfather who enjoys my time with my grandchildren. I don't have an official title. I don't have a seminary degree. I can barely read English, much less Greek or Hebrew. Pastor, you must not be talking to me. Well, I would say if it's good enough for a spiritual leader, it's good enough for a spiritual follower. Tomorrow, whether you're sitting in your last class of your junior year of college, or you find yourself trying to work with subcontractors that are difficult, or you find yourself simply ordering breakfast at a local restaurant, Pray this prayer. I'm going to be faithful today. I'm going to be faithful. Lord, what you would have me do, I want to do. Because like my pastor is expected to be, I want to serve and I want to be a steward of the gospel. Don't ever see spiritual leaders as powerless. They have the most powerful thing in all the world. They work for the king. But also, don't ever put them on a pedestal. And begin to base your faith on their performance, their innovation, their creativity, or their ability. They're just servants like you. Get beside them and row and serve the Lord with them. We need to follow the right way by regarding spiritual leaders the right way. But secondly, we also need to remember how to refuse sinful judgment. What's the right way to deal with sinful judgment? Remember the problem? The problem is some were saying, no, nah, I don't like Apollos, I like Paul. Oh, no, 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 I I, I, I I, like Apollos, I'm not really for Paul. Others were saying, no, 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 I'm for Caiaphas or Peter, but I'm not for Apollos. And so they were passing judgment on these people in leadership. If you've ever been in leadership, you know people are always quick to pass judgment on those who have public gifts in front of other people. Some fear the spotlight for fear of criticism. If you've ever felt like you were sinfully judged by other people, yet you were trying to do the right thing, brother or sister, I got a verse for you. Look at verse 3 and listen to what Paul says. Paul says, but with me, he gets personal, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. He goes on to say these words. That I should be judged by you or that I should be judged by any human court. In fact, Paul says, let me tell you what I think about human judgment. I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware, verse 4, of anything against myself. But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul quotes Tupac there. Not really. I just needed to pull some of you in. It's hot. You know, a lot going on. Stay with me. What do we do when the Bible seems to contradict itself? I mean, you, you really can't read verses 3 and 4 without hearing this simple message. I'm not really concerned with your judgment of me. I'm not really concerned with my judgment of me. For only God passed his judgment. Yet... If you have your Bible open to the exact page, probably, maybe one page back, if you find the 15th verse of chapter 2, let let me read it to you. Chapter 2, verse 15. The spiritual person judges all things. Now, Paul, which is it? Pun intended. I'm trying to make a judgment call here, Paul. Which is it? The spiritual person judges all things? Or I am not judged by you. Well, again. This is one of the beauties of Bible study. We study the Bible like we study all literature in its context. It doesn't take profound insight to recognize that there are two types of judgment mentioned in the Bible. There's judgment that is sinful, and there's judgment that is spiritual. In fact, if I were going to put it in a quote, I'd put it like this. This is D.J. Horton. You can tweet it. The fundamental differences between sinful judgment, we often call criticism, and righteous judgment, which we call discernment, are motive and method. To be honest with you, discrimination is a part of living. Now, that word discrimination and isolation has a meaning for you and me. If you were to say, do you believe in discrimination? Most of us would answer, rightfully so, of course not, because we attach that word uh, to the issue of race in our culture. But actually, discrimination on its own, the act of discriminating happened this morning. You have other shirts, men, in your closet. The one you're wearing is the one you chose. You discriminated against the other shirts. You chose the one that you chose this morning. You put it on. Ladies, I'm sure you have a number of outfits you could have worn this morning. You did a great job. You all look so beautiful. But you chose that. You may enjoy Asian food, you might enjoy American food, you may like soul food, you may like seafood. I would discourage you from eating all those at lunch today. You will choose one of them. Some of you are like, I'm going to choose a sandwich, what I always choose, right? We make choices all the time. Wherever your kids are in school, there's many schools they're not in because you chose the school that you put them in, whether it be by your zip code where you live or a private school that you pay for or you homeschool them. You make discerning choices all the time. In fact, the Bible is filled with us being commanded to discern, to choose wisely. But in the event that we're struggling with someone, that, that we are at odds with someone, and let's be even more specific, a spiritual leader in our life. A pastor says something we disagree with. The church elders make decisions we're not sure we're on board with. A small group leader shares a lesson that we find offensive or insensitive, whatever it may be. And we find ourselves in the body of Christ. Yeah, we're at odds with someone. And listen, if you do church long enough, everybody in your life will fail you, including your pastor. We're just gonna make mistakes. And not only will we fail one another, there are times when there are people over you who are actually in the right, but due to the condition of your own heart, you struggle with what they're doing. What do you do? How do you rock that tightrope between practicing discernment as to the will of God and not falling into sinful judgment? Well, we could spend a series of sermons on this, but simplicity matters, get back to the motive and the method. When I see people falling into sinful judgment, as the Corinthian believers had, it usually comes from a place of envy or it comes from a place of unrighteousness. In fact, if you compare two lists of behaviors side by side, usually resentment and envy are the seed bit of sinful judgment. And then there's no effort to pray about it and no desire to submit to what God's word would say. Rather, we run to sharing, might I be crass enough to say, spewing our unhappiness to any who will listen. And if this was a problem in the first century, they didn't have Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Social media often is used as the place for people to air out their frustrations in an unbiblical way. And the motive, when we sinfully judge a church, a leader, someone who's failed us deep down, we want them to fail. We don't want them to flourish. But when we're interested in discerning God's will about an issue, we start from the place of Lord, I acknowledge my feelings here. Yeah, I'm hurt, but I want what's right. Lord, Lord, I want to start with me, and I want want what's right. And then, Father, I know that even in my own heart I can be deceived, so I bring my struggles to you in prayer. Lord, would you search my heart? Before I start praying for the other person, search my heart, my motives. And then, Lord, what would your words say? What would your word inform me to think or do about the situation? Now, notice how much has happened before you say a word to anybody else about it. And then when you share, you share very wisely with spiritually mature people your struggle. It is a good thing to come to the brotherhood and the sisterhood and say, this is where my heart is. Would you pray with me? But you do that wisely. Jesus would say, you don't throw pearls to swine. You don't bring something that is sensitive and delicate in your heart and air it out for the world to comment, which is just you creating an echo chamber of people who were bitter before they read your post, and they'll be bitter with you during your post. And then your desire is for good. Not your good, not their good, but good. Lord, what is good here? What is redemptive? Now, you show me a person who's struggling with a spiritual leader, and if they'll walk themselves through this, no matter how the situation resolves, that person can stand before the Lord and say, as much as it depended on me, Paul would say to the Roman church, I sought peace in all situations. Now, I love how Paul does this because I think this is applicable to spiritual leaders. In fact, I've already noted that I'm going to preach this sermon the next time I get invited to preach at a seminary, uh, uh, which I do quite often. I, I think this is a message for young men and young women training for ministry. But it's also good for all of us to emulate. How did Paul deal with this? When you're the brunt of sinful judgment. When you catch wind that somebody says, yeah, I don't like going to their small group. I don't think they know the Bible very well. Or they weren't nice to me. Or when you catch wind that somebody says, yeah, I used to go to church there, but it got too big. And part of you is like, don't you talk about my church? I love my church. Don't you mention T.J. Norton either. He's a nice guy. It's D.J. Horton, not T.J. Norton. (laughs) Happens. When you feel sinful criticism, What do you do? Step one, keep the judgment of others in perspective. You know what Paul says? Paul doesn't say, well, you don't matter. Paul just said, your judgment doesn't mean that much to me. You come at me with sinful judgment, I'm just not going to put a lot of value in it. In fact, that's exactly what verse 3 says. But with me, it is a very small thing That I should be judged by you or any human court. That human court phrase is really any day of man. It's a contrast to the day of the Lord. The story is told that Gene Stallings, the former football coach at the University of Alabama, that inferior school um, in in the state of Alabama, (laughs) recruited a pretty highly touted kicker. The boy could kick. I mean, he could kick. And, And he was booming field goals. 50 yards was nothing for him. 55, he was getting close to being able to hit 60-yard field goals. This is a big deal in football, huge deal. It goes from having a, the opportunity to give the ball back in a punt to getting three points and putting your defense in a better position. You don't want to flip the field. The problem was the kid got so nervous every time Coach Stallings would watch him. Coach Stallings would be on the other end of the field. The kid would be booming them. People would be in awe. Coach Tollins would walk up, as head coaches are allowed to do, and begin to evaluate the young man's performance, and he could barely kick the ball. Coach said, son, what's the matter? He said, coach, I'm just going to be honest with you. I I can kick. I just can't kick in front of you. I get so nervous. Coach Tollins said, son, I'm going to be at every game. (laughs) In other words, if you can't kick in front of the head coach, you can't kick on this football team. I'm not staying at home for you to be successful. I'm more important than you are. Think about that. You ever been part of a performance evaluation at work? Don't you just love performance evaluation meetings? A full blooded performance evaluation will normally involve three parts there will be a peer review, where your peers are allowed to review your performance, then there's a personal review. Where you kind of say, this is what I'm doing well, and this is what I'm not doing well. Note to self, as somebody who lives the staff, always be pretty critical of yourself. It's never impressive to read somebody's own personal review, and they think they're incredible. That doesn't ever go well. Be critical of yourself. It's good to think critically. And then finally, there's your boss's review of your performance. Now, invariably, if you ask an employee, they pick up on this. Do we care what those around us care in our work performance to some degree? Does it matter what we think? Yeah, it does. But what really matters, what does your boss think? Because you don't work for your peers and you don't work for yourself. You work for him or her. Now, spiritually, this is what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, when I think about what I do before the Lord, if you're going to sinfully be critical of me, I'm just going to choose for it not to matter much. In other words, I only give you the power to disrupt my ministry if I overvalue what you said. So Paul says, for me, it's just not that valuable. But just when you think he's being arrogant or insensitive, he turns in and says, and by the way, step two, not only do I keep the judgments of others in perspective, step two, I keep the judgment of myself in check. In fact, he says this in verse four. Look what he says. In the second part of verse 3, in fact, I do not even judge myself. Now, you may think in verse 4, he's contrasting that by saying, for I'm not aware of anything that's against myself. Now, that could sound a little arrogant. Well, I'm not, only, not only do I care that you don't judge me or that you judge me, I don't even judge myself. And by the way, my conscience is clear. But that's not what he's saying because look at the next phrase. He says, but I am not thereby acquitted. In other words, Paul's saying, even if I don't think I've done anything wrong, that's really not my call. Whose call is it? Look what the passage says. It is the Lord who judges me. This is senior season. Some graduated this last week. Some will graduate next week. And there'll always be a commencement address. And a lot of things will be said, and some of them are good. But one of the messages of our day is, Go out and let your conscience be your guide. Church family, that is terrible advice. Unless your conscience is governed by the Word of God, guided by the Holy Spirit, and affirmed by the spiritually mature. If we don't bring our conscience under the lordship of the gospel then we don't even need to trust our own evaluation of ourselves. And don't take my word for it. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. The Apostle Paul is saying, I, I don't even make judgments of myself. Now, let me get real personal. Some of you, your greatest enemy to serve the Lord is the person you see when you look in the mirror. You consistently disqualify yourself from being used of God because you cannot get over who you once were or what you struggle with Even though God's been over it for years. Even though his grace is sufficient to forgive you. Even though he does not define you by your flaws. Now, I'm not speaking of someone who continually lives an unrepentant lifestyle. I'm talking about the brother or the sister in this room who has moved to a different place. You don't speak the way you used to speak. You don't think the way you used to think. You don't look at what you used to look at. You don't behave the way you used to behave. There is a difference in your life. Yet every time we ask for leaders, every time you feel that nudge to step up and do something spiritually, whether it be to share your faith or or, or to lead a small group or, or even to join a small group or to go on a mission, trip, boom, the enemy will throw up your past. Let me share with you what Paul would say you should do about your own sinful judgment of yourself. Forget it. Don't value it. In fact, it's really overvaluing your perspective. It doesn't matter what you say about your past. It's what Calvary says about your past. It doesn't matter what you define yourself to be or what you used to be. It's what God says you are now. In essence, if you continually allow your own sinful self-judgments to stop you from serving the Lord, you are making it about yourself, which is exactly what you don't want to do. And that's where the enemy paralyzes you. And Paul would say, I can't make that judgment. I'm not acquitted in and of myself. God judges me which leads to the beautiful final lesson you need to regard sinful judgment the right way but thirdly you need to remember God's judgment the right way look at verse 5 and I'll close he says therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time in other words don't be about writing people off don't go to a sinful place of criticism But it's not as if judgment doesn't exist. Paul says, oh no, it's coming. Look, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Remember a few things. Remember his return. Every preacher says he thinks the Lord's coming back. I always say we're closer now than we've ever been. But if you look around and you see what our culture is celebrating, if you see the condition of this world, while I long for people to come to know Him and I do not have a morbid or twisted perspective, I I want to continue to see us move and reach people. There are things in my life I want to see happen. I want to see my babies grow up and have their own families. There are things like that. I'm ready to go, and I'm not going to be surprised if he shows up anytime. And when he does, a part of his return will be a judgment. Now, Paul here is not speaking about judgment of the lost. He's talking about the judgment of the saved. And in that judgment, he will reveal. This is what he does. In other words, there's only a certain amount of judgment I can make about your life. I judge most of you wonderful. But I can't know your heart. Paul says that when God comes, not only will he disclose behavior, he discloses motive. That's what it says in verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Jesus talked about this in the book of Matthew. Jesus said these words. So have no fear of them, talking about unrighteous spiritual leaders, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Why? Why? Because we are blinded by what we don't know, but to God, dark is light and light is dark. This is why the psalmist David said it this way in Psalm 139, 12. Even the darkness is not dark to you, the night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. If you've ever put on a pair of night vision goggles, it is amazing to go from not being able to see to being able to see through technology. David obviously knew nothing about night vision technology, but he knew this. God is not affected by darkness. God sees all things, and he will reveal. But he doesn't just reveal what you did. He reveals why you did it. Now, you may think, well, that could be scary. That could be difficult. There should be a warning in that. It does matter. But notice how he ends. He said he's also going to recognize. The last phrase in verse 5 says, and this is when he will give commendation He will give praise. What are spiritual leaders that lose their way susceptible to? Self-praise, self-glory. What are spiritual followers that lose their way susceptible to? Giving too much glory and honor to one spiritual leader and too much criticism to another. Paul says, stop. A day's coming where every spiritual leader is going to be recognized for what he or she did. And when that day comes, that praise will mean more than you could ever imagine in the early 1900s henry morrison and his wife served in africa as missionaries and after 40 years they returned their health was gone they were broke they had lost family members on the mission field there were no airplanes in the early 1900s that could fly them across the atlantic and so they took a cruise ship back and on that very same cruise ship was teddy roosevelt then president of the united states who had been in Africa on one of his famous safaris. Teddy Roosevelt was a big hunter. The story is told that when Henry Morrison and his wife entered into the area where they were going to leave the ship, they looked out and there was a huge band receiving Teddy Roosevelt. Ticker tape, crowds wanting to catch a glimpse of the great president, Teddy Roosevelt. No sooner had Teddy Roosevelt and his caravan gone off of the ship that the crowd disbanded The band left, and the only thing was an empty parking lot filled with ticker tape. And then Henry Morrison and his wife came off quietly. A few days later, his wife noticed that he was unsettled and said, What's the matter? He said, I can't get it out of my heart. I'm bitter. we spend spent our whole life in this place making Christ known. We come back, and there's no one to receive us. This man went for a week on a hunting trip, and the whole world celebrated him when he came home. His wife said, you need to deal with the Lord about this because you are angry. She says he went into his bedroom. A few minutes later, he came out. She said, "Uh, what happened? He said, well, I made peace. What do you mean you made peace? He said, well, I got on my knees and I told the Lord how angry I was and how I resented it and how I didn't think it was right. And I just kind of poured my heart out for God saying, God, Teddy Roosevelt comes home from a Fun safari and the whole world celebrates. We come home after 40 years of serving in a difficult place and no one celebrates us. And he said, then in my prayer, in that still small voice, the Lord stopped me. And he said in my heart, son, you're not home yet. You're not home yet. I want to follow spiritual leaders who know they're not home yet. I want to preach to men who know they're not home yet. I want to lead women who recognize you're not home yet. And when we have that eternal perspective, let the world throw all the rocks they want to throw. I'm a servant and a steward of the king.